Well, there's a new employee. He was, um, he was instructed on how to measure valve parts to make sure they were ready for the final assembly. You know, one of those kind of last steps of the job is a quality control. How many have had kind of quality control kind of positions before? Okay, you know, even if you've read someone's paper to see if they're spelling errors, that's kind of a quality control thing, right? So everybody has to some degree. Well, this guy was given this responsibility. He was to check the valve parts. Pretty simple job in some ways, just to make sure that they were exactly the specifications that were needed to go to the final assembly to be able to put the whole thing together. Well, it had only been a few hours before his foreman uh, received complaints from those at the final part of the assembly line, and they were saying that some parts were actually coming back faulty. He found out which ones they were. He realized it was a new employee, so he goes back as a foreman to this new employee, and he, he just says, you know, I, I just need to kind of run over this again with you. What exactly are you doing? I'm getting reports that you're sending uh, parts to the assembly line that are oversized. Uh, I, I thought for sure that we went through this whole, you know, how to use the micrometer and, and how the specification should be just so. And, and the employee said, yeah, yeah, I got that completely and uh, I understand how to use the micrometer. But you, you see, most of the parts, when they come through and I've been measuring them, they're just too large. So I just thought if I open that up just a little bit, it would, you know, be fine because now all the parts fit. Well, we, we know how silly that is, right? We understand that changing the standards will only create disaster in certain situations, whether it be O-rings or nuts and bolts or whether it be even punctuation sometimes in a message. You know, they can just change the whole meaning and the whole message and it can create disaster. Well, what I want to share with you this morning is we come to this place in Galatians, in the letter that Paul has written to this church of Galatia. He, he comes at this point writing almost, in a sense, a quality control document with regard to the gospel and the essence of it, the standards, the truth of the gospel. He, he, he gets to this point where in chapter 2, and the first two chapters, if you look at it, are really all about Paul's concern that this authentic gospel, the truth of the gospel, is passed on, and they live it out, and they share it with other people. It begins, if you go back into to chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul is almost like a foreman. I mean, if you read the lines, it's almost like that. <clears throat> he goes, I'm astonished. Can you imagine the foreman coming? I'm astonished. I thought I gave directions. I'm astonished that you're deserting so quickly the one who called you to the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. You're turning from what was proclaimed to you as the good news and through some additions, even they be a few little meters more, you've made this good news no good news at all. In fact, it's really become bad news. Evidently, so some of you are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But he goes on, he says, even if we or an angel were to come to you and to share with you to change the standards, the truth of the gospel, let me tell you, let that person be eternally condemned because in doing that, it actually changes the whole message and the whole message gets distorted, it gets perverted so that when it comes to someone else, it won't do what it was intended to do. 
And he goes on, he says, if anybody, he says it twice, preaches you a gospel that's been messed with, let him be condemned. Not just fired. Let him get eternal fire, is what he's saying. And, and, and you might go, well, why? Well, he goes on in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, because the importance of the truth of the gospel, it needs to be so clear. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I want you to recognize that I wasn't taught it. And I want you to know that I didn't receive it from anyone else. In fact, I received it directly as a revelation from, from Jesus from God himself. And so it's not something that I put together that you could just come along and maybe a few additions might make it a little bit better. We're not kind of inventing something and then improving on it. We are giving you something that is completely as is revealed so that it gets passed on without being tampered with one bit. So the foreman Paul is going through this and he is so wanting to make sure that they don't tamper with the truth of the gospel. That in Galatians chapter 2, you now see him not only talking about the need not to tamper with it, but when people begin to tamper with it, he's willing to come up against anybody who would dare do so. So in Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, there's this group of very conservative Jewish Christian believers who are called Judaizers, who want to take the gospel and add just a bit to it. And it's during this time of transition. Whenever you go through times of transition, whenever things are changing, there is this need to keep clear on the truth of the gospel. And so he's seeking to make sure this is true. So that in verse chapter 2, verse 4, he says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. And then catch this. We did not give in to them for a moment. And, and look at these words. So that the truth of the gospel might remain with you, untampered. Not changed, not altered, not added. In fact, he was so concerned that he would stand up against the apostles themselves, the the ones who actually walked with Jesus. In fact, even one of them named Peter, who was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who had special time with Jesus, who at one point when Peter was beginning to fudge with the gospel, he was not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul had no problem as a foreman almost in a sense of quality control around the truth of the gospel to come before him and say, Peter, in front of everybody publicly, because what he was doing was public. He said, Peter, you can't do this. You can't mess with the gospel. In fact, if you look at that line in verse 14, We looked at this last week. He says, when I saw that they were not acting, and this is not just Peter now, but the Jews in Antioch where he was at, and eventually even Barnabas himself, who was in in, in one sense a, a missionary to the Greeks and Gentiles of that area, had had begun to pervert and distort the gospel in such a way that onlookers would never know the truth about the gospel by the way that they were there at that moment living. You see that? And so, as we come through this whole passage of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it's all about the authentic, true gospel that can't be tampered with, that is so important that what has been given by God remains true from generation to generation, 
there is a million dollar question that's being asked. Or maybe in light of the times, we should say there is a trillion dollar question. Our economy, that's kind of a little joke. Anyway, um, what's the truth of the gospel? In verse 14, Paul says, you can keep in step with it. In fact, he says they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. There is a sense that you can keep in step with the truth of the gospel, that, that it is possible. The word is the idea is that you can begin to veer off course, even slightly, to the right. Even slightly to the right, thinking that by what you do, you're saved. Or you can veer off even to the, to the left, which is a more liberal bend, so that you can determine what you think is right and you'll receive God's blessing. Both those are wrong. And so it begs the question, what then is the truth of the gospel? Because both of the veering off are veering off in, in a human's ability to decide or to somehow make this gospel true. And, and he says, I want you to walk in line with it. And so after two pages of writing, chapters 1 and 2, he now gets to the heart of it. You have to turn to these verses, verses 15 through verse 21, is what I call in many ways the hinge point around this authentic gospel. He then takes chapters 3 and 4 afterwards to give the basis and the explanation and the, the, the actual doctrinal justification for why this gospel is true that he's just presented. So what is the truth of the gospel? The very first thing that Paul throws out is a word that becomes standard in many of his letters, especially when he's writing about doctrinal truths, those things which are true. And the, and the word that he uses is the word justification. He basically says, if you want to know the truth of the gospel at the core of it, at the basis of it, at the bottom of it all, that which is its foundation is, a, that, is this simple truth that we are justified by faith in Christ. In fact, the word justification, as he begins to use it, and it becomes very popular within the early church because of Paul's writing, is, an, is a legal term. It was a, a term that was used in court. It was a term that said that you had a sentence upon you, that you had to clear your name in, uh, in, in some way of something that you have done so that you could be justified and be shown to be right, not wrong. So as it says in verses 15 through 21, You'll notice, up to this point, Paul hasn't used this word once, but now, in just these few verses, five times, he will use the word justify. In verse 16, he uses it three times. In verse 17, he uses it once. In verse 21, some of your translations in the New International Version will say that I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness, the actual word is justification, and it can mean for if justification or righteousness being almost equal here in its terms could be gained through the law, then Christ's death was for no good. It, it didn't matter at all. Every person, Paul says, whether Jew or Greek, churched or unchurched, religious or irreligious, spiritual or unspiritual, at some point in their life, when their life comes to an end, must be justified in the presence of God. They must somehow have this sentence due to their sin be removed. Because sin cannot enter into the presence of a holy God and into heaven. Sin 
separates us from God. It breaks our relationship now and does so forever unless something is done with it. Every person must stand before God as the judge. Because sin is pervasive. Every person needs to be saved from themselves, from their own self-centered patterns of living. That whole process of looking out for me, myself, and I. The Word of God says that every person has this operating within themselves. In order to understand the gospel, the truth of the good news, you, you cannot get to the good news unless you have an understanding of the bad news. And the bad news, according to the Word of God, and all you have to do is look at people, even look at a little child, and you'll see the bad news is that we are all self-centered, in the sense, sin-diseased creatures, who are, our desire is to look out for who? Me. And that selfishness creates a break in relationship with others. That selfishness creates um, and distorts our own life, and it offends a pure and holy God. And so you have this picture of, of, of you standing before the judge of the universe and you are guilty of sin because the word of God says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he makes it very clear, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one in their own life, through their own deeds, through their own works, ever measures up to the holiness of God. And so he makes that very clear. Now, now, I want to share with you that sin is not just an action. It's not the act of doing something wrong. It's far deeper than that. You know, for instance, you think back uh, in, in the time when your mother made nice chocolate chip cookies and you could smell it through the kitchen, right? And you were excited about having one, but for some reason this time she says, you can have one but no more. I'm, I'm bringing these to some lady's thing and you're going... Well, okay, so you take that one, you eat it, it's incredibly good. She walks out of the room, and what do you do? Well, that's the act of sin, but it's the act which is much more a symptom of a diseased heart that's selfish. And, and God says, because of that, every one of us stands before him with sin that has to be dealt with. And somehow, we have a choice. There are two ways... To get rid of the sin. There's two ways to, to bring this change within your heart that brings about a righteousness before God. And, and Paul makes it very clear. You can either be justified by works before this judge, this holy God, or by faith. Very simple. Two paths. Choice one, justified by works. is what you do. Either you believe that as you stand before the judge, he will look at your life, and if he looks at your life and you come and you're justified by your works, you'll come before God and you say, God, just take a look at my life. You know, I didn't do everything right, but I can tell you I did this and this, and these were good things, and I see how I served here. I actually went to church once in a while, and not only that, I gave, and then some people who are really religious have an attendance pin that goes way down, you know, and, and impressive. And some stand before him. Again, this is all in your own works, in your own self. And some stand before them and they go, you know, I didn't really do all that stuff. But you know, God, I was sincere. I really tried. I really wanted to do good. I mean, don't you look at that heart and you go, wow, okay, I grade on the curve, you get in. No. That diseased heart needs a cure. And so you can either come before him 
and hope that in some way that you can be justified, that you can measure up, that you can make the grade that you can through your own life pass to be righteous in his sight. Or you can do another path. It's the one that Paul says. In fact, he makes it very clear at one point when he says, we who are Jews by birth, so those who who were born into this kind of religious faith, being, quote, God's people, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, so these two classes of people, know, here's what they know. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ and not by observing the law, but because by observing the law, no one, no one will be justified. So the second option is this. If you choose not to be justified by your own works, by your own self, by pointing to something within yourself, you then have to choose to be justified by something outside of you. And that only thing that 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 the word of God says that justifies a person is Jesus and faith and trust in him alone. Now, that's the second option. That's what Jesus came and what he brought to lots of people. When Jesus came to earth, he was a big fan of who? He's a fan of the tax collectors, of the adulterers, of, of those who were thieves and those who were crooked and those, those people who understood their heart was diseased. But they were the kind of people that when they looked at the Pharisees, the people who were trying to justify themselves through their own works, they recognized that they gave up. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't measure up. They didn't even come close to those people. So in despair, they just gave up and said, I'll just live like whatever because I'm not going to be accepted by God anyway. And then Jesus comes along and he starts talking to them about this God who loves them because he understands and he sees their hearts. And because they understand that there's another way. And, 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 the, and the Pharisees are really ticked off now at this point. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, verses one and two, it says the Pharisees, those who trusted in their own efforts and hoped that they would be accepted and approved by God by something in and of themselves. They were ticked at Jesus and they said they muttered this man. This guy who's so supposed to be so holy and good, and this rabbi, he actually welcomes these sinners. And not only that, he spends time with them and he eats with them. What's the deal? And Jesus brought good news. He brought good news to people who understood the bad news that they would not be accepted. They would not enter into the presence of God. They understood by their own despair. They were so spiritually impoverished that when they understood that and they had someone come along and said, guess what? God doesn't accept you and receive you by your own works, but he does so through a gift of grace. That was good news. That was unbelievable news. He basically came saying, God, our father has come with a plan to allow you to stand acceptable before him, even if you have sinned. Using this legal term, Paul so loves to use. Here's what it would look like. I'm going to give you kind of a picture is if God is the judge and you at some point in your life have to stand before him, because it says in the word of God, every one of us at some point will stand before God, the judge of the universe. We will need to come before him. And in order to enter into his presence and through his holiness, something has to be done with that sin. So here you are living your life and and God, the judge, somehow makes it known to you that you can come before him and you can you can have a court appointed attorney. And, and he says, would you like one? And, and you go, no, I, I think I can handle it on my own. Right? 
And so you come at some point and you're standing before the judge of the universe. You've denied having a court-appointed attorney. You think you can present your case on your own. The day arrives. And the judge says, okay, come on, step forward. And up to this point, you've been thinking, oh, this will be no problem. I could just point to this, this, and this. Now, let me just share with you. I remember when I was in college, and I was pulled over by a police officer. I, only ticket ever in my life. Just kidding. Anyway, um, as fast as I talk, sometimes I drive. Anyway, um, I get pulled over. At this point, honestly, I was with my cousin. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And so when the police officer pulled me over, he said, you know, you can go to the court and you can, you know, stand and fight this if you want. Because I, I said, you know, I was an officer. And so I thought, I'm going to do that. So I get there. And in front of me, Cook County Court down in Chicago, there's like 30 or 40 people in front of me. I'm like the second to the last person. I'm sitting there that morning watching every person go forward in every case. None of them gets off. Not one. And as I'm watching this thing, my, my, my sense of pride, my sense of I'm going to stand there and tell this judge, is just dwindling. I get before the judge. I've never had this happen before. This is a human judge sitting behind a human-made bench. It was what was referred to during the service. It was one of those ineffable moments in my life. I could not. He said, how do you plead? I, I couldn't speak. Now, let's get real, folks. Every one of us someday are going to stand before God as the judge of the universe, the one who looks at our life and he's going to see our life. And, and it's not just acts of sin. It's because our heart is diseased. It's separated from him. We're going to have the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, let me tell you, I did this, this and this. And you're going to say, you're, what do you want to hardly be able to talk? You will be overcome with your sense of guilt. You will see how far you're separated. So there you are standing Trying to say something, understanding at that very moment that all your hope of being non-guilty is totally seen through by his eyes, guilt. Then all of a sudden you hear a voice behind you. You're standing there with hardly being able to say a thing, and you hear, Your Honor, Dad, this guy walks up. You look and you see it's the prosecutor. He's the only one who, who you know, he comes forward and... and and as you look at his life, it, it, just think now, here's Jesus Christ. He comes forward. Perfect, sinless life, always measured up before the Father. The Father is just in love with him because he is so righteous. And you are more going, oh, no, I am so much in trouble. This prosecutor makes me look really bad. And he steps forward. He says, Dad, you and I both know this guy is guilty of sin. But I want to declare him not guilty. That's the word justified. Declare not guilty. And the judge says, son, on what basis? And the son says, on the basis of this substitution. I will take fully this person, his penalty. All that he's ever done, all the crime, place it on me. And my perfect record, my life, 
would you put it on him? Now, the judge is a, a very respectful individual. And he looks out at you and he says, will you accept it? What do you think you'll do? First of all, you can still hardly speak. So you're gone. And the judge gets it. You've hardly done anything. You just want it. You want to believe what this... What the prosecuting son, who is fully righteous, says is true, and that the father, who is the judge, who looks down at you perfectly holy, without sin, is looking at you and says, okay, I'll take it. You are blown away. You were speechless before. Now you can hardly even think. Because on the basis of someone else, you have been declared not guilty Because you have been given their life. Their perfect, loving relationship is now yours. And you go, I don't deserve it. And we all go, of course you don't. It just removes all pride. It removes all sense of, I did it. And you're dazed and you can't believe it and you can hardly find your voice and The one who has all the ability because of his perfect life to prosecute you till the hilt doesn't. You know, there's a time in Jesus' life as he was walking down the road, the Pharisees who who didn't realize there was some bad news in their life, who really felt that by their own deeds they were going to be good. They didn't like this Jesus, so they're always testing him. So they take this lady who's been caught in adultery. Can you imagine? They, they waited, looked, whatever, and they found this couple. They heard probably about it, and they grabbed this lady in the midst of adultery, pull her into the road, throw her on the dust. They're angry, and they say, Jesus, what should we do? And she knows in her heart, according to the law, she's condemned. She should be stoned. That's what the law says. They're saying the same thing. They're asking Jesus, what do you want to do, Jesus, the prosecutor? And he gets down in in the dirt and he begins to scribble. and, And some people say maybe he could have been writing the Ten Commandments or writing some different things. Thou shalt not steal. Don't lie. Don't hate, you know, all kinds of things. And then he, at a certain point, she's just sitting there in shame, completely guilty. And he looks up at them and he says, those of you without sin, go ahead and throw the stone of condemnation upon her. Let her have it. He starts writing again in the dust. And he hears stones that were in their hands drop to the ground. And he hears a few walk away. Maybe the older ones first who were more aware of their own sin until finally the younger were gone. And he looks up and there's none there. He looks at her and she looks and there's no one there. And he just says to her, you know what? Quit trying to find life and love in the arms of someone else. Find it in God your Father because he loves you deeply. Go now and and, and don't sin any longer. Jesus was the only one because of his perfect life without sin who could have thrown the stone. And he didn't. He didn't. 
Because he had come and he said by his very life, I declare you not guilty, not on the basis of anything you've done, but by your trust in me. You have been justified. I don't know where you're living today. But here's the truth. If you don't know God, if you have never, ever understood, maybe you're living and you know the shame. Most people who, who, who are looking for God, often when they're coming to church, the reason they come is because they're looking for help. They're already feeling shame and guilt and condemnation. And the good news is that God loves you. He justifies you. He declares you not guilty, not by anything you do, but by like that person standing for the judge just going, please. Here's the problem with the church. The church, after a while, many people come and understand this truth. They know it and they've experienced it at their heart. But then they begin to live like Peter did just a few verses before. And they start living out of their own sense of strength and their own sense of my own goodness. And and they begin to realize, oh, yeah, God forgave me. But I just now it's kind of based on on my own goodness. And Paul would say in chapters one and two. Take out the micrometer and look at it again. There is only one measure that will allow you to live in the acceptance and love of God. And that is faith in Jesus, justified only by him. And so justification is basically this. God declares you as not guilty on the basis of Jesus and his work and what he's done and on nothing that you have done. All you do is receive the gift. Before a sinner trusts Christ, you stand before God guilty. The moment you place your trust in him, in his sacrifice, and in his work, and in his perfect life, that gets transmuted to you. It's yours. And you are now declared not guilty. Justification, folks, is not simply forgiveness because a person could be forgiven and then go out and sin and become guilty again. Justification is more than that. Once you have been justified by faith, According to the courts of the law, you can never be held guilty before God again. Your sin has been taken completely, fully, at this point in your past and in your future, and all of it has been bundled together, you know that kind of bundling thing we get these days, and removed from the sight of God. It's like that double jeopardy law where you can't be tried twice for the same thing. Some of you are familiar with it. It's a court procedural that in the United States is actually a constitutional right that forbids a defendant from being tried twice for the same crime on the same set of facts. God takes your entire life. He takes all the facts. He presents them there. And Jesus says, I take all that and remove it from you. Justification is more than just pardon. Because a pardoned criminal still has a record. You can go ahead as a president, you can pardon someone, but they still have a record. You're just giving them release from that sentence. But according to God, once you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and you have taken his work, his life, his perfect life has now been placed on yours. And God sees you in that way and he sees you no longer with a record of sin. He remembers your sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far is What? Your sin removed from you. And Jesus made it clear that his father, God, 
justifies sinners. Not good people. You might be wondering, what do you mean? You see, just as a doctor, Jesus said, treats the ill and not the healthy, because the healthy, they have no need for it. They have no understanding of it. For them, some kind of treatment for the illness isn't good news because they don't realize they have it. They, they claim that somehow my diseased heart isn't so bad, and so my goodness will be good enough so that God and someday will look at me when I stand before his court, and I look at him and I say, God, look at my life. I'm sure you'll accept it. And they think there's nothing wrong with it. They're going to be justified by what they think they do. But the great word of God, the truth of the gospel is that the person who sees justification by faith in Jesus is the person who sees themselves in need of a savior, in need of someone to come into their life, to give them a new heart, to begin to start moving in their life so that this pattern of sin that gets shown out in symptoms that, that create difficulty in their marriage and to create difficulty where they work and create an, an offense before God needs to be taken care of and needs to be rooted out. Now, for instance, if, if someone came along and had the cure for Parkinson's and you don't have Parkinson's, you wouldn't matter to you. If you had MS and someone had the cure, you wouldn't care. Or if you had lupus, or, you know, see, if you don't, if you yourself personally don't have that and you go, it doesn't matter. Now, maybe a friend does and that's something that you're concerned about. But if you don't, There's no good news. But the good news is for the one who comes before God, says Paul, and he walks in line with the truth of the gospel that recognizes there's bad news. I need this good news. I need to be justified, not by a thing I can do, but by Jesus alone, so that I can receive forgiveness and live in the forgiveness and love of God. Right? That is available to each and every person here today and to each and every person you rub shoulders with tomorrow that is the greatest news that God has given you that people are longing for and what's interesting here is as Paul goes on and he makes this point he is thinking already what some of them are thinking. Well, you know, if you're justified by faith in Jesus alone and it's not according to my works, then why in the world would you want to be good? Why don't you just live the old? I mean, you just go out and live the old life. Now you've got a free ticket to sin. And, and every time you sin, it just makes God's grace bigger. And he, he, he already presumes that, that argument in verse 17. If we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners So he's basically saying, when you look and measure yourself against Christ, or you take the law and you measure yourself against it, what it's supposed to do is expose your need, your sin. Because evidence we're sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Does that mean that that Jesus is going, okay, now go and sin all you want because I've taken care of it? (laughs) Absolutely not, says Paul. If I build what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. It only shows once again that if I try to live by the law, if I try to live by by my own works, it just shows again what it always shows and exposes is my diseased heart. And my diseased heart needs to be taken care of. So why would I ever go that path again? For through the law, here's what he says. I died to the law. You see, when you trust and are justified by faith in Jesus... Here's the thing that happens in you. You are now given new life. You are given his life in you. You are actually given his DNA. You are given a new heart for your diseased heart. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to automatically start living like Jesus the next day. But what it means is the potential, the resurrection power is available for God to begin to work this out in your life and to begin to give you new desires to live in harmony with other people, to live out his love towards other people, to live a forgiving life, to live a life that gives mercy, to live a life that becomes patient and grows in that, that live a life that shows all the fruits of the spirit that is now available. And so Paul makes this very clear when Jesus was crucified on the cross, when his body was placed there, so was I and I died. I was crucified and with him I died. And when I died, there is now a new life living in me. Christ lives in me. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. And if you steer any way from uh, off it, you miss the reality of the truth that you are justified by faith in Christ, that you are now given a new life with new desires, a new principle and impulses within you that have the ability to change your very life. Folks, the power of God is in the gospel. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is what? The power of God for everyone who believes. And through that belief, You allow for this new life of God. You live in His forgiveness. You don't have to keep trying to be forgiven again and again. It's a settled matter. And when you sin, you recognize it. and Basically, your response is, Oh, thank God, how much more I need you than I ever realized. And then you get right with the person you offended. And that can be hard. Last night, before I preached... I knew I had offended my wife. It was my driving again. Anyway. And I remember going, God, I just got to ask you to forgive me. This pride isn't right. And I wasn't like beating myself up. I just had to move back into the life of Jesus that calls for humility, that says, God, I want your desires in me. I want your life in me more than my own life. I've died to that. It's a a reality. I live in this. It's mine. It's available. And I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to walk in step with the truth of the gospel that says the bad news is that I'm a sinner in need of, of, of Jesus to justify me so that I can walk in the grace and goodness of God. That's the last thing he says here. He makes it very clear. He says... I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live with Christ. This new life lives in me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old has gone. The new has come. That's a reality. That's not something you hope for. That's a reality. And then he says, the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in God's grace day in and day out. And here's, here's what you've got to look at. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now look what he says about the Son of God. It's all about his grace. It's all about the prosecutor coming up and saying, you know what, I love him so much. And Father, our desire is so much for him to be in fellowship with you that we would do anything. And I live by this faith in my body daily. I daily throw myself into the arms of Jesus, as he says here, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
When I was beginning to work this out in my life, when I was beginning to work with the shame and the guilt and, and all the sin and, and seeking to walk into the righteousness and to live in the forgiveness of God, one of the things I do is I try to spend time in the morning with God. I read His Word because it has a way of recalibrating my heart. And I read His Word and I pray because the prayer is powerful. It's the most powerful thing we can do. And so I read God's Word and I pray. And as I do that, I, take, I have this little coffee cup that was given to me a long time ago. And on it, it says, Jesus loves me. And uh, it must be like one of those little precious moments cups. You know, it's a little. But anyway, it's not a real manly thing. But um, my girls know not to mess with that cup. Because that is just a symbol of what happens in my life on a daily basis. As I live my life in this body in faith that Jesus says, throw yourself into my love. Just walk in my love daily. Find forgiveness anew. Find the fact that I'm merciful. Recognize the fact that I'm patient. Recognize the fact that I'm good. There's nothing that's entered in your life that I'm not aware of. That I am not in the process of doing something within you. Because I want more than anything to build the character of Jesus in your life so that when you stand before me someday, you will receive the full inheritance of what I have planned for you. And walk in that. Day in and day out. Because if you choose, he says, to live, even after you understand this, and you choose that somehow now your works are going to make you acceptable and going to make you good, what you are actually doing is saying, Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for the substitution. Thanks for your sacrifice. All the pain, but thanks so much I can handle it. I don't need your grace. Now, I want to share with you, the truth of God is not some moral principles that we follow. It is truly a relationship with a God who loves you so much through Jesus and through this relationship and commitment of love where the Holy Spirit enters into your life and begins to change you. It is that which brings about change. Not your desire to be morally good. But your desire to be honest about what's going on in your life. See, the problem that happens when you move into legalism is that you move into hypocrisy. And when you move into hypocrisy, you move into a place where you lie, where you have to be good so other people can see it. And so then the whole church gets going and they begin to start choosing certain behaviors that are good and bad. You have an in and out club. It's driven by fear of what are they going to think of I me? Mean, I better do this. And if I, if I don't wear a suit on Sunday morning, then they're going to, you know, I'll be judged. Baloney. You become fear driven and then you become proud because now it's something you're doing. Now you can boast about it and say, God, I did something. And he goes, that all messes people up. It messes people up. And God wants a church that will walk in the line of the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel, folks, the truth of the gospel is what Paul is seeking to preserve. Not one, not one micrometer off. This simple truth that you are accepted and loved by God through what He has done through Jesus, His life and His work and His death and the cross, the resurrection of power that fills your life as you commit yourself personally to Him, as you come into humble gratefulness with what He's done, you cannot help but live for Him. I, uh, 
I share with you a story because you, you have to read this all in line with what's happening in Galatians here. Because just before this, the reason Peter, the reason Paul gets into the truth of the gospel is because what he just saw happening. This church begins to move in hypocrisy. It's fear driven. It begins to divide up. And it's not a one-time thing. The imperfect verb here talks about the fact that it was becoming a pattern. He, Peter was now starting to, for a, not just one time, but a number of times, beginning to, to eat separately because he didn't want to look and appear as if he wasn't holy. I read this story and it just blew me away. He's a man who was nearing 60 years of age and he had been haunted by the memory of being raised by, by parents in a church where there was a lot of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And he said it had taken most of his adult life to come to grips with the fact that he was so emotionally and spiritually hurt by their self-righteous deception. He said as a family attended church where it was taught that you don't go to movies. You can pick movies. You can pick um, dancing. You can pick any kind of behavior. My grandfather stopped bowling because bowling was associated with bars at that time. And so he stopped doing that. You can pick any activity and identify it with something and say don't go there because that doesn't look holy. But this was that they didn't go to movies. So firmly, this was enforced that you were shamed and shunned if it was ever heard that you did in the church. The problem is his family usually went to movies on Friday and Saturday night, though all was in secret. They would drive many miles to another community where they felt they could watch the film in safety. They made it clear to the kids they shouldn't say anything to anybody about what they were doing. Picture this. Here they are driving home from the movie on a Saturday night and they're drilling it into their child. Keep your mouth shut about this. And the next morning they walk into church and they play the game, shunning and shaming moviegoers with all the rest. And afterwards he writes, it took years to figure out how damaging this bit of hypocrisy was to my relationship with God. Learning deception and hypocrisy as a child should it surprise anyone that I picked up a lifestyle of deception as an adult? Think about it a second. When, when, Peter, when Paul made this line, um, when he said they're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, literally, one of the commentators says, onlookers would never know that the truth about the gospel from the way you're acting. Because the truth of the gospel sets you free to find your acceptance and approval, God, so that you can in confidence walk and courageously, even in the eye of someone who disapproves, can still say, God is more important. And these verses in Galatians aren't about something that occurs in the first century. It happens in the 21st century. This is about you and me. It's about our ability sometimes to begin to get off course and to fail to recognize what Paul said. And this is what I, I just love this line. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That bad news, good news is the power of God for anyone who will believe it. And it's the power of God in a church who will walk in trust, believing that again and again, it's about the love of Jesus and what he has done and given that sets his spirit free. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to be people who are so fully committed to you that our lives are 
honoring to You in all that we are and do. We recognize this morning as a church, I speak as a leader of this church, we recognize the bad news. And that is that we are desperately in need of You. And we praise You for the good news that You are desperately committed to saving us through every day and every moment. And that has been done and we rejoice in it. In Jesus' name.